So, good after, good morning. It's 11.52, April 22nd, 2022. Really got grateful to be here, and I have some good stuff for you today. Um, just enjoying the sun. It's really one of the first warmer days. I was just in Florida. And here, and I'm enjoying a lot of wild plants. After this, I'm going to reward myself with a smoothie. And the greens that I'm going to put into it are lots of wild greens. So dandelions and and uh, dock leaves and garlic mustard. Really whatever I can get my hands on. So that's going to be great. And I'm really excited to bring you this, these articles today. I have three today. And we, I'd like to also say that this this podcast is sponsored by the uh, our, our summer camp that we're going to be hosting in Harriman State Park and in the Catskills this June. So we'd love to see you there for kids. This is a kids camp. Um, so if you're more interested, please check out our website at the Lion Man School of Rewilding. W-E-R-E-W-I-L-D-I-N-G. You'll see the, um, the show notes um, below with all the links that you need. So the first article today comes from last fall it's from the call this guy can the from the he's, he calls himself the plant doctor and here's his little bio radko tishavishki is a czech-born mexican agro homeopath he's the co-founder of these two books uh, he's a fa- and he's written these books um so he's he really uses homeopathy for plant health so he has these people that can write into him. So two things, a couple things that were interesting to me about this guy. So this one guy said, dear, he's responding to him. Dear Vajai, for the affections on grapes caused by, there's this one pest. He says, you can use the essential oil of Thymus vulgaris, dynamized at a potency of six JT, applied once every two weeks by spraying. It is also important to maintain a good inoculation of the vines with mycorrhizic fungi, such as one species, um, he says, applied once every two weeks. And he's also applying onto the leaves phosphorus, um, homeo- homeopathic phosphorus. And he also said uh, applications of this rat- retin, I think it's called. It's a it's a plant, and I use it as sprays um, at, a, at, diff, at a specific potency, at 4JT potency, will help control this fungus. The next one was Dear George. He's responding to another one. That is this disease, the diseased, uh, the disease is caused by the fungus. I think he's referring, this is for apples, right? Yeah. The disease is caused by the fungus Venturia inacquiensis, ascomites. So that's a kind of like a larger group of uh, fungi. He says you can apply Salix babylonica, which is a species of willow, 3JT. So that's, I guess that's a different concentration, alternating with cinnamon, cinnamon, verum, cinnamon. Four applications per month will be enough to diminish and fix the condition. The disease is transmitted through fallen leaves and infected leaves and is perpetrated in the following year. This is what we talked about a few weeks ago. The ill leaves should be then treated in the fall with the two homeopathic preparations above mentioned above and should be removed before snowfall and burned or composted. After the compost matures and before it is, it, it is spread in the garden, 
the application of the two homeopathic remedies should be carried out again. So that was interesting. So this guy's using plant concentrations, homeopathic concentrations, um, which makes a lot of sense on diseased fruits and orchards, I guess across the, in, in the whole world that he's helping people. The next thing I want to talk about was this plant called guayucum, sometimes called guayucum. It is this genus of flowering plants in the caltrop family. So caltrop, I believe, contains like watercress, uh, not watercress, um, water chestnuts. Um, they call it the family Zygophilaceae. It contains five, five species of slow-growing shrubs and trees reaching a height of 66 feet, but usually less than that. So it's native to to the to the Americas. Um, the genus name originated in Taino, the language spoken by the Tainos of the Bahamas. It was adopted into English in 1533. The first word, actually, it's the first word in that language of American origin. Members of this genus have used that for as lumber for medicinal purposes, and actually, this this species guayacum is controlled under the CITES. Um, Appendix two, so the uh, compendium compendium of uh, controlled plant plant trade. Um, I think it's by the UN. So that that's pretty cool, and uh, so they're controlling the protecting the plant. Um, Guayacum officinale is a national flower of Jamaica, while Guayacum sanctum is a national tree of the Bahamas. And so this plant, beautiful blue flowers. I came upon it because I was researching syphilis. So if anybody doesn't know about syphilis, here we go into the world of syphilis. The timing of the arrival in syphilis in Europe certainly supports the above theory. Columbus journeyed in, in 1492. The first written records of an outbreak of syphilis in Europe occurred in 1494 or 1495, first in Naples, Italy, during a French invasion. Since it was claimed to have been spread by French troops, it was initially caused, called the French disease by the people of Naples. The, the disease reached London in 1497 and was recorded at St. Bartholomew's Hospital as infecting 10 out of the 20 patients. In 1530, the pastoral name Syphilis was first named by the Italian physician and poet Girolamo Francastro Storo as the title of his Latin poem describing the ravages of the disease in Italy. In Great Britain, it was called the Great Pox. The Spanish en encountered Guayacum wood when they conquered San Domingo in the, in the 1600s, which that would be, that would be the uh, 15, uh, 16th century or the 1500s, early 1500s. It was soon brought back to Europe, where epidemic syphilis had been raging for nearly a century. Maybe this is later in the 1500s. Gum guayacum quickly acquired a reputation for as a cure for syphilis, a practice Benvenuto Cellini records in his memoirs. Syphilis, uh, according to Wikipedia, is a sexually transmitted disease caused by a bacterium Treponema pallidum, subspecies pallidum. The signs, it's pretty, uh, pretty gnarly. Um, wouldn't want that for anybody. After 1522, the 
Blatterhaus, an Augsburg municipal hospital for the syphil syphilitic poor, would administer guaiacum as a hot drink followed by, by a sweating cure as the first treatment and use as mercury as a treatment for, of last resort. So that's pretty, people were still using mercury in those days, but um, what's interesting to me is people were, uh, people were working in the sun and then sweating and consuming this, um, this plant in a hot drink. Um, these were mostly rich people coming to the Caribbean to do this for their for their disease. Another 16th century treatment advocated by the Italian physician Antonio Musa Brassavola was the oral administration of the root of China, a form of sarsaparilla, Smilex, which is um, a, it's a medicinal plant. There's different species, Jamaican sarsaparilla, there's um, sarsaparilla rotundifolia, I think. There's different ones that grow up in the Northeast as well. In the 1600s, English physician and herbalist Nicol Nicholas Culpepper recommended the use of wild pansy, which is in the Aster family, very aromatic. It's actually really good with meat uh, as a seasoning. And then my last article for today, I'm just going to move in inside because um, the computer is about to lose battery. Um, just give me one second. Okay, so one second. So my last article today is called the determination of nutrition of the nutrition contents of the wild plants used as vegetables in Upper Kuru. Kuru. This is in Turkey. Um, and actually, I'd love to go to Turkey one day. So this is evidence of people still using wild plants, um, especially I think they, they mentioned it in the north northwest and the southeast. It's by a few authors, Aratan Yildirim, Hazma Polat, and one other person from Turan University Faculty of Agriculture. This was produced, uh, this was published in 2001, Turkish Botany, the Journal of Turkish Botany. So I'm um, just making sure that we're good on time. And let's see, making sure that's good. Just checking out the timing. No, we're, we have plenty of time. Okay. So they, they go on to say, recently a resurgence of interest has developed in wild species for their possible medicinal values and diets. Wild plant plants, plant, wild plant species provide minerals, fiber, vitamins, and essential fatty acids and enhance taste and color in diets. In addition, they have antibacterial, hepatoprotective, and anti-carcinogenic properties and therefore have medicinal values. So antibacterial, obviously antibacteria. Hepatoprotective, hepato means liver, so they're liver protecting and anti-carcinogenic, so possibly protecting against um, carcinogens, which can damage DNA. So many, they go on to say, many wild plants have been used as salad and vegetable dishes prepared in traditional recipes in Turkish cuisine. Approximately 40 wild plants are consumed as vegetables in, in Turkey. This is not saying spices, it's actually a vegetable. So that speaks to the more profound use, the more sub substantial use of it. It's more of a, a caloric use of it, you would say, not just a, a taste as taste. Um, approximately 40 wild plants are consumed in vegetables. Um, Gusus and Arctuk in 1984, 1984 
pointed out that some point some plants use as vegetables in the Aegean region. Aegean region, I believe, is Greece. Uh, so I guess that would be southern Turkey. Uh, contains significant amounts of minerals and vitamins. Furthermore, in the northeast and southwest of Turkey, like I said, wild plants consumed as vegetables and their mineral and ascorbic acid contents were investigated in this article. So ascorbic acid is vitamin C. Data obtained from wild plants show that they have a very high nutritional potential and their nutritional value is greater than that of some green vegetable vegetables presented in the next table. With, with respect to their mineral content, we're going to be talking about this. So I'm going to go over some of these, uh, these species and they're going to compare them. So they have, let's see, they have four cultivated species, lettuce, spinach, parsley, and cabbage. And then they have wild species. They have, they have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So they have species in the, in the broccoli family, um, I believe in the spinach family, and they have them in the celery family. Um, there's different, there's about, let's see how many, one, two, three, four, it's like five different families of plants. Um, so, you know, lettuce is in the Asteraceae, spinach is, I think, is in the Chenopodiaceae, parsley is in the um, celery family, and cabbage is in the mustard family. So they're they're doing that, and they're adding a few others. So they, they talked about um, plantain, um, plantago minor, polygynum bistorta, astrodarchus orientalis, camelina rumelica, lathyrus tuberosus, Gallium, rotundifolium, kinopodium, album, and sisimbrium officinale. So of these plants, the ones I really have eaten are um, plantago and kinopodium. I have experimented a little bit with gallium and polygynum. I actually have eaten polygynum, the genus, not the exact same species. Um, and they're used in all kinds of things. Um, they're used as cooked or actually they're categorizing it as cooked or raw as salads. Or then what portion of the plant is edible? Is it the leaves or the stems or the roots? So sometimes it could be all three and sometimes it could be used as cooked or and as raw. So interesting to me, what I really found really cool because um, I'm kind of geeking out on it uh, was the mo the wild plants were really hot, much higher in in a lot of different nutrients and minerals, but especially I saw phosphorus, potassium, and magnesium. Obviously magnesium, uh, a lot of people were deficient in it. And if, I guess if you ate more wild plants, you wouldn't have to take the supplement per se. Um, but let's, for example, lettuce has a magnesium content. Uh, I think these are, these are values are shown. I guess these are parts, you know, per, per leaf or something like that. So lettuce has 11, spinach has 66, Parsley has 14 cultivated, cap, cultivated cabbage has 21. Okay, so, you know, nothing more than 66, but really the average probably being 20 to 25. Now let's talk about, okay, P minor, 52. P bistorta, 48. A orientalis, 48. C romelica, 45. L tuberosus, 43. G rotundifolium, 30. C, this is Kinopodium, 112. 
and S aficionati, 35. So the average probably being here could be even up to 60. So probably double that of the amount of the cultivated. Uh, others notable were phosphorus um, and potassium. Uh, so P and K. I mean, amazing, amazing amounts like spinach. Um, for example, the cultivated, the highest was parsley and potassium at 727. The highest in potassium in the wild species was literally double that at more than double that at uh, 1,544. Um, and phosphorus was the average was also higher than uh, the cultivated. So that speaks to um, what I'm going to be I'm actively researching and writing about is really affirming that um, wild species can really uh, accompany cultivated species. I love parsley and I love lettuce. Um, I love cultivated vegetables as well. But there's a lot more to our diets than we think that meets the eye. So that's all I have for today, folks. Um, I really appreciate you all listening and i hope everybody has a wonderful weekend and thank you so much for listening feel free to share this thank you so much take care